0: Hello, this is Dan Kilbride. I'm the chair of the history department at John Carroll University and the host of New Books in American Studies. And what that means is that every week or so, I find an interesting book in American literature, politics, science, history, culture, pretty much whatever, and interview the author about it. And today we are joined by Charlene Boyer-Lewis. She's the Associate Professor of History and the Director of the American Studies Program at Kalamazoo College. Uh, We're talking to her today about her new book, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, An American Aristocrat in the Early Republic, which was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2012. She's also the author of Ladies and Gentlemen on Display, Planter Society at the Virginia Springs, 1790 to 1860, published by the University Press of Virginia in 2001. Charlene, welcome to New Books in American Studies.
1: Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm excited to talk to you about this new book that I wrote.
0: All right. So here we have uh, an example of a biography of a non-famous person. Uh, You know, anybody walking into Borders or Barnes & Noble or on Amazon will find Just loads of biographies of Civil War generals, the founding fathers, presidents. But here we have today a study of somebody who, you know, while famous, certainly in her own day, is pretty much, you know, maybe outside of Baltimore, forgotten about today. Um, And there were plenty of well-known women in the early republic. You know, we got Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, and of course, Dolly Madison, and later on, you have people like Harriet Beecher Stowe and Margaret Fuller, who are very well known. You know, but these women, especially the Adamses and Dolly Madison, were famous for who their husbands were. Uh, you know, in the first lady's case, and in the case of Stowe and Margaret Fuller, they were famous for their accomplishments as writers. But Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte had a different kind of fame. Um, And what this book does is spends a lot of time exploring the concept of celebrity in the early years of the United States, you know, especially the distinctive ways that women had to go about achieving celebrity. And, you know, what I found in looking over this book is that, you know, in her, I guess it's not unfair to say it's her active pursuit of scandal. uh, Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte comes across in some ways as a shockingly modern woman, um, I don't know if he's a, you know, a Kardashian for, for the early Republic. You know, although you know the ways that she achieved scandal would hardly wrinkle an eyebrow nowadays. So, Charlene, uh, tell us about yourself and tell us about your your pathway to this book.
1: Well, um, I'm kind of one of those historians that always wanted to be a historian ever since I read, you know, The Little House on the Prairie books, basically, and thought I should grow up and, and, you know, study Laura Ingalls Wilder and her family and all that kind of stuff. And when I said that to my mother, she said, you have to go to school for a really long time. And she was right. She was right. I went
0: <laughs> to for right. <laughs> a
1: really long time. And, but when I came out with my Ph.D., I basically kind of kept that same interest of studying families, of studying society, of, you know, really doing social and cultural history um, with a special focus on women. So I'm still basically the Laura Ingalls person that I was uh, when I was little. And Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, I agree. You know, I didn't even know who she was. Uh, when I first started thinking about her, and so she, even though she was incredibly famous throughout all of the 19th century, and in fact one of the first silent films is about Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. Wow! In the early 20th century. Um, I, I stumbled across her when I was doing research for my first book, the one that you mentioned on the Virginia Springs, mm-hmm. and she was one of the people that everyone else said kind of set the tone, set the fashionable standards at the Virginia Springs resorts, and I thought, who is Elizabeth Bonaparte? Because that's what they called her. They didn't have the Patterson in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, is it, is it actually a real Bonaparte? You know, who, who is this? Um, And so when I was done with that first book and I started researching what my second book would be, I kind of remembered her, right? I remembered her in the back of my head from doing that original research and I started to track her down and I found some really, really old kind of um, lightweight biographies of her from the 1920s and 1930s and... I was surprised to discover that there were American Bonapartes. I had no idea. I think most people don't know that there were American Bonapartes unless you are from Baltimore. You're exactly right. I think
0: that's safe to say, right? Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. I've I've done a number of book talks on this book, and everyone in Baltimore who comes to my book talk pretty much knows who she is. But when I went to Washington, D.C. or Philadelphia, the audience of who knows her gets smaller and smaller Hmm. um, before they read the book. So she just turned out, you know, just from the little bit of reading I did, I just thought, this, is, this isn't this incredible woman, and she's really pushing the boundaries, and she's really exciting. Most women in this time period, and I know you know this, Dan, are boring. They just kind of live the regular lives. Well, you're talking about middle class and upper class white women. Right, they they sure. live the lives society kinda of tells them they're supposed to live. And most of them are dutiful daughters and they get married at the appropriate age and they marry somebody who's appropriate. Again, if you're talking about middle class and upper class white women. And then they have their babies and they just live their domestic life without having people call attention to them. That's what women were supposed to do. And so when I first found out about Elizabeth who is shockingly calling attention to herself Um, because everybody from the beginning wrote about her clothing and how she wore her clothing. I just thought, I need to look into this woman. Who is she? And, and she's not boring. She's going to be fun for me. (laughs) Um, And she was, she was so much fun to write about for, you know, the eight or nine years that it took me to do this book. I, she, she was never boring. She was never, never, never boring. And, right away it was clear that she was one of the country's first celebrities and there a lot of people are writing about the history of celebrity right now and there's a lot of different definitions about celebrity and what does celebrity mean and a number of historians argue that you need to have a broader media culture that you need to have you know the the nationwide newspapers and magazines mm-hmm. Some Mm -hmm. even argue, no, you need to have the radio and you need to have, you know, widespread kind of movies. I disagree with all of that. I think you can locate celebrity way back here in the the early republic. Um, It's a smaller celebrity, of course, but still people around the country knew about Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte. I have uh, newspapers from Chillicothe Ohio writing about her, Gosh. right? Um, so that's, that's the frontier at the time, right? No, almost no one's living in Chillicothe, Ohio. Similarly, you know, Western Kentucky newspapers were writing about her, okay? So that's why I argue she is one of our first celebrities. Um, a couple of people have said to me, she just seems like the Paris Hilton of the early 19th <laughs> century, um, or, or and a couple of people have made the, the connection you did with one of the Kardashians. But I think she's more than just somebody who's famous for being famous, right? Which is really what kind of Paris Hilton and the Kardashians are. Mm -hmm. They're famous for being famous. And her celebrity required a lot more construction because there wasn't the media apparatus that there is now, right? Um, And we also have now conflated celebrity with fame, which I don't think they were conflated. They were two distinct categories Mm. in the early Republic. And so I argue quite clearly, hopefully, in the book that Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte is a celebrity um, who ultimately gained a, a certain kind of fame that was really only open to men. Men were famous. Men could also be celebrities. But very, very, very few women were famous. More women were celebrities in that... Fame, I argue, and in this I'm drawing on the work of Joanne Freeman, who looked at, at mm-hmm. how men become famous as well. And so fame was really something that happened, first of all, in the, the public arena. You couldn't be famous privately, of course. And it was really through politics or the military or religion. You were a really good minister, you were a really good general, or you were a really good politician. And that's how men became famous and fame meant a concern for your current reputation but in the early republic famous also meant that you were going to have a reputation that lasted beyond your life and so people who were celebrities were really only famous at the time right that so they mm-hmm. were celebrated that's the word that they used in the early republic all the time a celebrated bell right Mm-hmm, and that celebrity mm-hmm. was more fleeting than fame. But this is certainly what ambitious women had open to them, was to become a celebrity. Because they weren't going to do something militarily to gain fame. Um, almost no women could be ministers to gain fame. And certainly none of them had the political arena to gain fame. So, And I've talked with Catherine Al Gore, who's written on Dolly Madison. Mm-hmm. And in, right. in her earlier book, Catherine said, "I don't think Dolly was a celebrity. I think she was just famous. And now she thinks she was a celebrity. Um, oh. She's changed her mind. And, and so this this next work that she had that she had come out on Dolly Madison. She calls her a celebrity. And she says, no, I think you, I think you were right. You know, I think I think she was a celebrity as well.' So All
0: right. congratulations. It's,
1: that's right. I was like, hey, I, I I convinced her.' But You know, we conflate celebrity and fame, and they didn't. And so I thought that was one of the important things that I was doing with this book, was to kind of separate those out and then show how, if you were a woman with ambition, celebrity was something you could appropriately grab, you could appropriately pursue, right? Um, And so lots of women were celebrated belles. Um, Some women were celebrated even after they were married, but you really weren't supposed to. Once you got married, you weren't supposed to draw public Mm -hmm. attention to yourself. And Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte consciously chose to keep drawing attention to herself. And that's why she's so much fun. That's why she's so interesting. (laughs) I think that's why people like reading about her, because she's totally different than Martha Washington or Abigail Adams, who you mentioned, who, of course, were in the public eye, were, I would say, probably more famous than than, celib- than being mm-hmm. celebrities. Um, and, and they, as you noted, did so through their husbands. And Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte did this really kind of on her own. Um, another historian, Carolyn Eastman, has said to me, she's kind of the, one of the first self-made men, but she's a woman. <laughs> um, and I said, wow, that's a really interesting way to think about her. And that is, it's kind of thinking. you
0: should about have her. thought of it. Yeah, I should
1: have thought. <laughs> that's a great.
0: That's a great line. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a really interesting way to think about her. She's one of the first self-made men of the nineteenth century, but she's a woman. I liked that.
0: Besides being a celebrity, you also call her an aristocrat. Now, and and some people, uh, some people have told me this that using that term in an American context is simply inappropriate, Mm -hmm. that there are no aristocrats in the United States. Mm -hmm. In what respect was Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte an aristocrat, and why is it appropriate to use that term to describe her?
1: I I agree with you that some people have questioned that use of aristocrat, and I know you in your own work have have used it, because you and I see eye to eye on a lot of ways to define elites in the United States. Well, one argument I could make is that... She was, by marriage, not exactly an aristocrat, but a member of an imperial family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, we could call her at least titled, right? I mean, the Bonapartes were not an aristocratic family. Everybody knows the history of the Bonapartes. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just born on Corsica. They were poor until Napoleon seized all this power. So she was certainly titled briefly you know potentially had a title because of whom she married so perhaps her marriage could give her that name but that's not really where i'm what i'm going for in this book and in fact you know the subtitle of the book is an american aristocrat and Mm -hmm. i like the kind of paradoxical idea of putting aristocrat after an american and a lot of that gets at uh, the reason why I like that title so much. It gets at what I was trying to do with this book was to use her to get at Americans' ambivalence about aristocracy, um, and you're doing this in your most recent book as well. That it's clear Americans
0: thank you for the plug. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that Americans didn't just shun aristocratic ideas, aristocratic culture, right when they when they became revolutionaries and then members of a republic. They continued to be really ambivalent about it, and many historians have argued that this kind of ambivalence ended with Jefferson's election in 1800, and it was clear the more I did research about the meanings of Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte in the early republics, so and not just what she did, but what people were thinking about her, and how people were talking about her, that Americans were still ambivalent after. You know, it wasn't Jef- Jef- uh, Jefferson's election that kind of made that all go away. They still don't know how much aristocratic culture is good for American culture. They still admire it. They're still wowed by it. They sure are. Uh, they love fashionable aristocrats. They love fashionable furniture. They love, as you know, the people you study who go to Europe and walk around these palaces and these beautiful country estates, they still love that stuff. And many Americans, wealthy white Americans in the United States, keep modeling themselves on, America, uh, on aristocrats, though they live in the United States. The Binghams, for example, I think are a really good example, but really any mm-hmm. kind of plantation aristocracy, right? There's that word again, but these, these elite plantation owners are doing the same things. All those people in Charleston are purchasing an aristocratic lifestyle, and Elizabeth consciously chose to present herself as an aristocrat, and that's another reason why I think using that word aristocrat works here, because she fully understood what an aristocratic identity consisted of and what a republican identity consisted of and she consciously spurned the republican identity and chose to create for herself an aristocratic identity she knew what aristocrats wore in england and in france so she wore that she knew the exact appropriate jewelry that aristocrats wore in england and france so she bought it, and even this is what I loved about her, even when she couldn't afford the diamonds, she would buy w- white topaz, right? A lot cheaper <laughs> than diamonds but look like diamonds. Um, and so she used to wear tiaras, right? She would walk around with tiaras on and all the kind of appropriate accoutrements of an aristocrat. So she really did think of herself as one and purposely presented herself as one. And another reason why I think we can call her an aristocrat is because other Americans did. They knew, that's the word they used when they talked about her. Or at least that's the condemnation. It was really negative. (laughs) She's an aristocrat, she's too aristocratic, she's too aristocratic. So it was all negative. Um, And yet they still thought she was fabulous. They invite her to all the parties. I mean, this is how she's Paris Hilton, right? People kind of denigrate her, but then she keeps being invited to every single party um, and every single dinner. And women, young women, start dressing like her. So she's that ambivalent, she she displays, she purposely wears and presents for the historian a really good illustration of that ambivalence that Americans still have about aristocrats. That's a really long answer. No, but I thought about it a lot, right, before, no, before I made that title. Um,
0: well you know, Americans still haven't gotten over this. You know, there was just an event that took place that uh, shows that Americans are still pretty hung up on the whole idea of nobility. I I, waited all
1: day to find out about the baby, (sighs) about Wurling Pate's baby. I kept turning in, uh, you know, turning on CNN (sighs) and waiting and waiting and waiting. I know, it's horrible.
0: Um, Yeah, I wrote a blog post on the Hopkins sites uh, just ranting about how un-American the whole thing was. I just was repelled by the entire (laughs) story. Sick spectacle, but anyway. Yeah, I was, pre- I was,
1: I was, you know, I, I, I met perfect ambivalence. I thought, this
0: is stupid, and then I thought, i got to keep watching. You of know? so all excited. people should know better. <laughs> anyway, you mentioned that, um, you know, Elizabeth was not only a self-styled aristocrat, she did have some claim mm-hmm. to, uh, not as you said, noble birth, but a title. And that was via her... Uh, Marriage to Jerome Bonaparte. Can you just tell the listeners, how did she become the wife and relatively quickly the ex wife of Jerome Bonaparte?
1: Well, it's a terribly romantic story, which is why a couple of people said to me, This should be a movie. And I said, Well, it was. You know, it's been a silent movie <laughs> twice where, where they've changed the endings um, one silent movie and, and one talkie, actually. But she met him in. Baltimore, when Jerome was was leaving the Caribbean, he had been, been helping to fight with his brother in the Caribbean, and he was trying to get back to France, but was hiding out from some British Navy ships, and so thought it would be easier to leave from Baltimore and not get caught going back to France than to leave from the Caribbean. So he arrives um, in Washington, D.C., sees Jefferson, gets some money from the French consulman because he's always out of money. He was a centrist. <laughs> and comes up to Baltimore where Commodore Joshua Barney had invited him and says, you know, come and have some fun before you leave. So there's not exact uh, a true story. You, you know, I, I don't have real evidence on how she physically met him. Some say it was at this party. Others says it was at the Baltimore races. But clearly they met each other. Um, unlike earlier women, it was clear to Jerome that he wouldn't be able to have a relationship with her unless he married her. Um, he had had mm. other relationships with women that did not include marriage, that were all quite scandalous. But this was, you know, an, a, the daughter of the second wealthiest man in Maryland. And there was no way she was going to risk everything mm-hmm. except for marriage. And so they got married very, very quickly. They, they met in the summer, and they got married in, on Christmas Eve of 1803, in spite of the objections of all the French officers in the United States, the council, um, up and down the coast were saying, no, 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 Napoleon won't like this. Her father thought it might be a good match, but was also really worried about it. So there's the the prenuptial agreement, uh, the marriage contract is very, very wordy and very lengthy because they're all worried about what Napoleon's going to think. And they were right, Napoleon was livid, <laughs> absolutely livid when he found out about this. This was just when he, he's not yet emperor, but he's just about ready to proclaim himself emperor, and he wants to have all of his brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews to make strategic marriages around Europe. With deposed royalty or soon to be deposed royalty, so Jerome marrying a Baltimore woman, even though she was incredibly wealthy, was not Napoleon's plans. Um, Napoleon referred to her as Jerome's little girl, right? So not even a wife, (laughs) but clearly kind of implying a mistress, and even you know not even a worthy one of that, right? So he never acknowledged the marriage. He tried to get Pope Pius uh, Pope Pius in Italy to annul it, and the Pope wouldn't. So Napoleon had the French legislature annul it and prohibited Elizabeth from ever stepping foot in any part of the French empire. So they go, Jerome and Elizabeth sail to Portugal because that's the only place they can actually get off the ship. And Jerome says, I'll go talk to my brother. Don't worry. And they had a miniature painted of her. As soon as he sees your beauty... Not a problem. Well, she never sees Jerome again for decades and decades and decades and decades after that. Um, and so the the marriage is annulled by the French legislature. She later gets a divorce from the Maryland legislature, once Jerome loses his kingdom, and she's worried he's going to come back and get her money. She gets she gets she gets a divorce from the Maryland legislature. So she gets, the marriage ends in France long before it ends in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah,
0: it, Napoleon was going to have none of it—absolutely none of it. Uh, one thing you've alluded to before, and I wonder if you could expand on it. In the way is the way that uh, Elizabeth used very self-consciously used fashion to create her celebrity. In particular, and not not only, but in particular, uh, scandalous kinds of fashion. Uh, and you are clearly very interested in this because you spend a lot of time on it in the book. What can you tell us about how she used fashion to create this aura about her?
1: Well, this was one of the wonderful things about her for me, because I had always wanted to write about clothing and the presentation (laughs) of the body through clothing. And I touched on it a little bit in my first book, but not a lot. And I really wanted to do a lot more with that. So this was... A woman who allowed me to do that. And the reason why I was so interested in clothing and fashion and the presentation of it is because that's so much of the way women construct their public identity, the way they present themselves out in the public. And so I knew it could be a really useful vehicle for understanding women and analyzing women to look at clothing. So I found this wonderful fashion obsessed woman to do that with, and so I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled. And so she recognized from the beginning, you know, her first kind of entree onto the public stage is when she marries Jerome, and she knew that clothing says an enormous amount about yourself. So she didn't need, you know, 20th century sociologists telling her that. Um, you know, we now have fashion theory and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And they're basically saying the same thing she figured out a long, long time ago, is that this, this is the message. This is the loudest message you send about yourself is what you're wearing. Um, and so how what you choose to put on and then how people choose to analyze what you have put on says enormous amount about both the individual and the culture itself. And so she knew that if she wore a particular kind of clothing, this was going to garner, garner her a center part of the spotlight, ensure her public attention, and I would argue ensure her celebrity. So she chooses, again, to make it clear how she's an aristocrat, French fashion. In a time period where most American women are still wearing what women wear in England, which was not nearly as scanty as what women were wearing in France. And even though there were some women in the United States who wore French clothing, they didn't wear it the way she wore it. (laughs) Um, She wore French clothing the way Josephine and Napoleon's sisters were wearing French clothing. So it meant diaphanous fabrics, very sheer, very light, Fabrics that cling to your body, you know. Think of of that Grecian kind of statue, and that's what they were trying to emulate. Uh, David, the painter for the Revolution, right, kind of puts all the women in his paintings in these Grecian gowns that cling to the torso, that cling to the body, and so that's what French fashionable women were wearing. So Elizabeth wore those too. Now in France, they were even more. Um, Uh, scanty than what she wore. For instance, Josephine and Napoleon's sisters would rouge their nipples so you could see them more through Mm. the fabric. She never Mm -hmm. did that, or at least I never found anybody saying that she did it, (laughs) and I think they would have. They would also wet. In in France, they would wet the gown so it would cling even more to their body. She never did that. Mm -hmm. But for all intents and purposes, many she would say prudish Americans, but I would say more conservative Americans, looked at her and basically thought she was naked. Because even though she had a dress on, it was so lightweight, and these dresses did not have corsets, um, or they only had a very lightweight, small corset, not the big things that women wore in the middle of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. There were no hoops, there were no petticoats, so you could see... Her thighs when she walked, you could see the outline of her thighs. You could tell where her rear end was um, when she walked you could the The dress started right below her breast, so it accentuated where her breasts were right They were sleeveless, so you saw her shoulders um, they she wore very low backs almost down to the middle of her waist, and so you saw all of her back sculpture, right? You saw her backbones and her scapula and her neck, and, and so it was known around town that she had the most sublime shoulders. Now, whether they really meant shoulders or something else, I don't know, um, but you saw, and then with her hair up, right, you see all of her neck, you see all of her shoulders, you see all, you know, you see so much of this woman's body that Normal American women never exposed. And so even the women who wore French fashions, American women who did, they would put lace handkerchiefs over the plunging necklines. They would wear a shawl so you wouldn't see the plunging back, right? Um, Some of them put little cap lace sleeves so they wouldn't look so sleeveless, so at least it would come down over their shoulders. She didn't do that. So you saw her shoulders, you saw her back, you saw her arms, you, you know, you, you, she looked naked. Um, and she used to attract crowds of boys around her carriage. <laughs> when she would get out, they would all these boys would stare at her. When she would go to a party, people were staring in the windows. As, you know, a couple people said, they were staring at an almost naked woman. So, she, I mean, she just flaunted it, basically, right? Mm-hmm. And she had a very petite... Lovely figure, Um, so, and a beautiful face. Many, many people thought she was the most beautiful woman in America. So she used all that. She used all that.
0: Do you think she, you observe that she didn't go as far as uh, French women like Josephine went. Do you think she calibrated or tried to calculate exactly what she could get away with in Baltimore and didn't go all the way?
1: I don't have any evidence to say that, right? I don't have her really saying, I chose to wear this, but not that. But I think she did. I think she knew incredibly well what line to walk, how she could be at the very edge of scandal without ever really being scandalous, how she could be attracting attention knowing that she was going to be remembered, knowing that what she wore would be literally remarkable in people's letters without ever going so far as to never be invited anywhere again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and she does this her whole life it, with everything. Um, she's very calculating, and this is how far I can go, but I can't go any farther. <laughs> I, she knew she knew how to flirt. Men fall in love with her all over the place, including married <laughs> men. And she gets end up ends up with something like six or seven wedding proposals, m- marriage proposals. But she accepts none of them because she wants to keep the last name Bonaparte, right? Um, but so she knows how to interact with men without ever it causing a real scandal or a real scene. Um, Same thing with her clothing. And she's cautioned a couple of times by elderly, more older women, not elderly, but more matronly women who say, stop wearing that or we're not going to invite you anywhere. And Elizabeth just says, yeah, right. Um, She keeps getting invited, (laughs) right? She keeps getting invited. And so that she doesn't listen to them. So these matronly women say, no, 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 you're going too far, but it never had an impact. It never had an effect. So, I, like I said, I don't have any of her letters saying I'm very careful about not crossing any lines. But I think she did that with her whole entire behavior. Never mm-hmm. was there any sexual scandal attached to her. Nobody ever thought she was having an affair, even though she never remarries. Right? She comes back to Baltimore in 1805, she's mm-hmm. very, very young, in her early 20s, and never remarries. And she dies in, when she's in her 90s and no, at no time is there any kind of romantic scandal, sexual scandal, affairs attached to her at all. So she, I think she knew very well how to walk this line, better than a lot of our celebrities nowadays, right? <laughs> I, mean, I think she's a real model that a lot of these, these people who want to be celebrities nowadays could follow, is how do you figure out what's not too far?
0: Um, well, maybe that's because... There is no limit nowadays. Maybe there there is no going too far. Maybe, yeah. maybe maybe there is, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I I'm not sure where that line is because it keeps getting extended <laughs> you know every month or
0: something. Right? Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was much One more rigid. You, it was much more rigid than the <laughs> early republic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One thing you observe is that uh you know, Americans ambivalence about Elizabeth is partly due to her, you know explicitly you know ex- explicit embrace of ar- aristocracy but also because americans were ambivalent about france in this period and elizabeth was not just uh, self-consciously aristocratic she was also french yeah so what do you think uh, her uh, you know her public persona and the way americans encountered her what does it have to say about americans conflicted feelings about france in this period
1: Well, again, this is why I think she's so illustrative and why this book is not a true biography, right? i use her to look at a number of themes in the early Republic, and one of them is this kind of love-hate relationship with France. I also think there's a love-hate relationship with England, but she doesn't show that as well. She shows the France one. And this is where her actions and her behavior get really political because she's not just seen as a fashionable aristocrat. You're right, she's seen as French, and she is linked to the most dangerous man in Europe at a time where the United States is really nervous about Napoleon and really nervous about Napoleon's power. um, She gets married just as they're finalizing the Louisiana Purchase Agreement, and so the ministers in France, Robert Livingston, etc., are all really nervous about what's going to happen, because they know Napoleon's not going to like this. And yet here they have just trying to finalize the very last, you know, documents about the Louisiana Purchase. And when Napoleon finds out about this wedding, he writes to Jefferson and says, how did you let this happen? You, you should stop this. And Jefferson says, I can't do that. We're not in a country where I have that kind of power. I can't stop somebody from marrying, right? So it becomes kind of this international incident and a diplomatic problem for the ministers who are over in France. And Livingston writes these letters um, back to Madison and to Jefferson about why do I have to deal with this young woman? How did this become my problem? Um, You know, we're in these really tricky negotiations with France, and now I have to deal with some, you know, 18-year-old marriage to, you know, this young brother that nobody cares about, and now it's my diplomatic headache. And it's a headache for Livingston for two years. Um, When he leaves, it becomes Monroe's headache. So in that sense, it gets wrapped up in the politics of the United States and France. Once it's kind of rumored that she might become a duchess, And Napoleon actually wants her son to come and live in France. This is when Napoleon's having a hard time having children, and he's about ready to divorce Josephine. And so she has one of the only really healthy imperial Bonaparte heirs. Um, There's another nephew, Louis, but Mm -hmm. he's kind of sickly. And so Napoleon's thinking, I could have this kid, right? This could be my kid. And she makes it clear that she's not averse to that idea. And so wind gets around of this, and a number of Republicans of the Republican Party think that Napoleon's going to use her child to establish an empire here in the United States. But this is just the beginning. So she is seen as incredibly dangerous. Um, For those who see France as a very dangerous country, because Napoleon, you know, nobody knows how to read Napoleon. Nobody knows what Napoleon's going to do or not do. So she's seen diplomatically as a threat. What if Napoleon's going to establish an empire here through her child? That's why they, Congress passes an amendment against her. And so that's all wrapped up in it, too. Socially, I think she shows how some Americans remained very much ardent Francophiles. Um, it's her Frenchness that gets her invited to a lot of places. It's that, you know, a clot of, of being French. That get finds people find her so alluring. She knows French. She's 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 fluent in French. Not surprisingly, those mm-hmm. French clothing, that French clothing, they they're all you know that they're all attracted by that. Even though politically, they're all mad at you know France for turning this revolution into something really bad and having this emperor now. <laughs> um, so again, it's that ambivalence that she shows that that Americans have toward France as well as toward the aristocratic part, right? Yeah.
0: She traveled for the second time in her life to Europe in 1815. And as you describe in your book, she was a big hit. Yeah, she was. Uh, how did she succeed on this? On a, I mean, it's one thing, I think, to come across as an aristocrat in Baltimore. Nothing against Baltimore, which is a wonderful place. <laughs> but it's one thing to come across as an aristocrat in a place where most people have never seen a real aristocrat. That's right. But she sails to Europe in 1815 where the people she hangs around with know the real deal. Yeah. And she still is a huge success. How did she do it?
1: Well, I think, again, this is where it's her kind of double um, um, impact, you know, the, the the double power she has. That Bonaparte name is going to get her attention. That Bonaparte name gets her into circles that she wouldn't normally get into. And what I think people forget is that Bonaparte made Napoleon Bonaparte made a lot of people aristocrats in France, mm-hmm. who were still considered aristocrats even after Napoleon's in exile and the Bourbons returned to the throne. So she has aristocratic circles open to her because of that Bonaparte name people welcome her in because of that Bonaparte name, in old aristocrat circles, which I think is really ironic, right, the ones that (laughs) should not like a Bonaparte, Um, and in the new aristocratic circles. And I think, so the Bonaparte name is part of her entree, but you're right, for her to be a success, she had to be able to have all of the right accoutrements to be a success, the right behavior, the right sentiments, not just the right clothing, right? Mm -hmm. But she had to know, she had to have a certain kind of polish. She had to know how to converse in these circles. She had to know how to dance in these circles. She had to be appropriately educated for these circles. And she had all of that. She was known as one of the most wittiest women in all of Europe. And people used to write in their letters, keep track of all her kind of scathing criticisms um, or quips that she would make at dinner parties. (laughs) And Madame de Stal loved her wit. Um, You know, one of the most intelligent women in Europe praises Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte because she thinks she's so witty. So she's witty. She's charming. She knows how to flatter men. And so she runs into Dukes, and she runs into Counts, and she runs into Marquez, and she knows how to flatter them. And they think she's wonderful. The Duke of Wellington, who defeats Napoleon, is enamored of her enough that he gives her a little dog, right? I mean, she's such a hit, because she has the whole package. And this is kind of what I argue. She has the whole thing. She's incredibly well-educated. She's fluent in French. Not all Americans are, right? So a lot of Americans think oh. to Europe. And then we can't talk to anybody. Um, she can, right? And she knows, she knows when to be witty and, witty and charming. She knows when to be sentimental and serious. She can understand enough science that when certain more educated scientific circles that she runs in are talking about science, she can discuss that with them. Um, She becomes a literary woman herself. She starts writing. She starts writing her own memoirs, and she starts writing um, kind of uh, her her ideas about Europe, with the intention of perhaps publishing European Europe travel journals, just like lots of Americans are doing. So she fits in this circle incredibly well. She's kind of chameleon-like. She knows how to be a success in France. She knows how to be a success in England. She knows how to be a success in Switzerland. Because the Genevans love her, and they hate most everybody else, but they love her. And she's a success in Italy, even with exiled Bonaparte. Um, So it's really amazing how much this woman could craft her identity and suit that identity to wherever she found herself. It's it's really stunning how well she did that.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's clearly a, a very, very intelligent person, in addition to being, you know, clever and Mm -hmm. cunning, I Mm -hmm. think is another word you Mm -hmm. can describe her. She also had, she was also ambitious, uh, you know, and she had very definite opinions about what was wrong with American society in the decades after the 1790s, say, uh, what did she think about American society, and how did she try to influence its direction?
1: Well, she hated American society, and I don't think that's too strong of a verb to use. Um, she used words like, I detest America, right? Um, it was my fault I was born here. Um, she <laughs> called Baltimore a desert. Um, Americans, she once said, you know, were insipid and simplistic. So she hates american society and she hates it because it's republican she does not like the idea the notion of equality of all men that is not a notion that she embraces at all in fact she thinks it works against what's best in a society and in a government she truly believes society is naturally hierarchical there are supposed to be people on the top Ruling society, setting tone to society. She thinks monarchies or, or empire, uh, imperial um, emperors, right, are the way to go for a government. She thinks it's ludicrous to have this idea that people should vote for their representatives, the people who are going to rule themselves, uh, rule them. So she doesn't like a republic. She hates even more democracy, like that sense <laughs> that everyone can somehow be participating. She thinks those just those don't work. And it's not the way society's supposed to be. Women like her, from families like her, are supposed to run society. Kings are the best way to go. Kings are emperors. Um, she hates it when France throws off the Bourbons, and she only thinks it's redeemed when they choose her ex-nephew, I guess you, should, you could say, to become Louis <laughs> the Third, Napoleon the Third, the new emperor. Right. So mm-hmm. she thinks that Americans have just chosen. The wrong path, that they never should have established a republic, let alone turning a republic into a democratic one. She thinks that's just wrong. And similarly, because they embrace that republicanism, that sense of kind of equality, that ruins gender roles and gender relations, she thinks. That this idea that women, that there aren't superior women, who should be shaping society, that Americans don't really embrace that, she thinks is so wrong headed. Just so wrong. Um, that there are women who are smart enough and creative enough and fashionable enough who should be leading society. There should be no reason for women to withdraw from the public arena um, and just be domestic. She thinks that's just wrong headed. Um, and so, I don't think she intended to be a model for Americans. I don't think she said, you know, you should do it my way. I think Dolly Madison did that more. I think Dolly Madison really kind of set herself up as this is the way an American woman can be an American woman, but still have an important role to play. Um, I think Dolly Madison said, you know, my job is to lend refinement. The national culture. It's my job to make sure that even though we're a republic or a democracy, we're not, a, you know, a, a low one, um, we can have high culture here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth hated the United States so much that I think she just thought it was a waste of her talents. <laughs> I am not going to waste my time here. Um, she complains about how Americans in the evening only pass around apples and nuts, how boring. Um, they don't have a social life the way they do in France, so she just thinks it's a waste of her talents to be in the United States. That they that, that shouldn't even try, and I'm sure that's what she would have told Dolly Madison. Don't even try it. What a waste! <laughs> so that's why she spends, you know, so much of her her twenties and thirties and early forties in in Europe, um, because she's just given up on the United States.
0: Um. One thing you examine in your book, and this has been a pretty popular subject in the the literature lately, is relationships between women. Um, And one thing you do is you compare and contrast Elizabeth to other divorced women of the time. And you also explore her friendships with other women, particularly aristocratic women like uh, Lady Sidney Morgan. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you talk about those, those two separate issues? I mean, how was she like other divorced women and unlike other divorced women. And why was she accepted by by, quote-unquote legitimate aristocrats like Lady Sydney Morgan?
1: Well, let's, I'll talk about the, the, how she's like other divorced women first. Um, Mm -hmm. She's like other divorced women in the fact that for most divorced women in this time period, they're not the ones that sought the divorce, right? The husband often sought Mm -hmm. the divorce. Um, but most of the way she's unlike divorced women, she has enough wealth that she can control what she does with the rest of her life. Most divorced women in this time period become impoverished, Mm -hmm. um, and don't have very many options. And most of them go and live with, with family members. She never does. She establishes her own household. So her wealth makes her greatly unlike other divorced women. Also, unlike other divorced women, she doesn 't choose to retreat kind of and live a more private life. Many many divorced women have had a scandal kind of attached to it um, to, to their divorce, and so they kind of retreat into a private life and they 're known as being kind of modest women for the rest of their lives if they don 't remarry and many of them remarry so she 's unlike a divorced woman in the fact that she doesn 't retreat in fact, you know she makes it clear that Yes, I'm divorced, but I'm still out here, and I'm still mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, and she never remarries. That's also how she's, unlike other divorced women. And it's because she knew if she ever remarried, she couldn't be a bonaparte anymore. And that's her ticket, right, is, is to be a bonaparte. Mm-hmm. But when she gets to France and 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 Italy and to Switzerland and runs into many of these other women, these cosmopolitan, aristocratic women. Many of them are widows as well, so they're women on their own. Lady Sidney, Sidney Morton is not. she She's married, but her husband's often in, in Ireland when she's in Europe, um, or he goes back and forth. So she's kind of independent as well.
0: Well, he was also a pretty, I don't know if the word progressive is the appropriate one, but he very—he definitely had a very modern sensibility of yes. the relationship between, between men and women. He Saw you know, Sydney as an equal, yes. certainly, and he enabled her to keep her own income, right? Yes, and
1: yeah, and right. and yeah, they had kind of separate accounts. Everything that she made from her writing was hers to use. So she, Elizabeth runs into these far more like-minded women in Europe than she can find in the United States because she's independent, like they are. She has they most of them have more wealth than she has, but she has enough wealth that she can be in their circle and travel with them. But it's these relationships coming to this as a woman on her own with no husband to dictate where she goes, no husband to dictate what she has to do with her son, no husband to dictate whether, um, you know, most women who travel around Europe and travel with their husbands, it's their husbands who determine when they leave a place and when they go to the next place and when they go to the next place. She can come and go as much as she wants. So it's this independence that allows her to make these really close relationships with these other independent women. And so I find it really fascinating that it's this kind of cosmopolitan roaming group of aristocratic women that become her closest, closest friends. Mm
0: -hmm. In addition to being a celebrity, uh, Elizabeth was also a mother. Um, She had the son, I think his name is Bo, is that right?
1: Yeah, that was his nickname.
0: Uh, How did she balance celebrity and motherhood?
1: Well, I don't think she balanced it very well. People who have read the book, one of the first things they say to me is, she was a horrible mother. She
0: was just a horrible (laughs) mother.
1: And it's because that ambition that you mentioned earlier, that she was so ambitious. Um, I think her ambition outweighed her sense of duty to her son. Well, let me rephrase that. Her ambition defined her sense of duty to her son. Mm -hmm, So she was mm -hmm. not like the typical mother in this time period who kind of sacrificed everything about her life for her son. Instead, she thought her son should share her ambitions, that her son indeed could be a vehicle for her ambitions. And she was baffled when he didn't want to become a member of a royal family. She was baffled when he chose the United States over Europe. She was, I mean, as I write about in the book, when he decides to marry an American woman, she has a breakdown. I mean, I think we would all define it pretty much as a breakdown. Um, And she writes these hellacious letters to him, just making him, I'm sure, feel horrible about how he has... She has spent her whole life grooming him to become a prince, and he's thrown it all in her face. She never saw her son separately from her own ambition. And so, you know, in that sense, yeah, she's a lousy mother, but she also educated him incredibly well. She made sure he met his father and shared time with his father. Mm -hmm. Um, She made sure he met his Bonaparte family members. Of course, this was for calculations, right? She wanted to make sure he met the Bonaparte. She wanted to marry him to one of his cousins, one of his Bonaparte cousins. I don't think she got a lot of positive feelings from being a mother. I don't think it was that important to her. She never wanted to have another child. She said Mm -hmm. motherhood was a thankless task. Um, so, She's not
0: the first or the last that's right. person to that's right, that.
1: That's right, that's so, right. But she was just blunt about it, right? Where most women did not use right. that kind of language in talking about their children, she did. Um, and she said, you know, I'm so glad I only had one son, and I'm glad he was smart, and I'm glad he's attractive. And, <laughs> you know, um, again, this, there is no separating really any of her roles, mother, daughter, right? horrible relationship with her father um, from her ambition. It's that ambition that kind of drives everything.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that last thing you said about, uh, you know, that relationship with her father and to a lesser extent her brothers, mm-hmm. but she had a very strong willed, very successful father and they had a very checkered relationship. Um, talk about her relationship with William.
1: Checkered is an interesting word to use. Um, disastrous is the word that I would use. <laughs> they, I don't think, ever really got along. I mean, there's not very much documentary evidence from Elizabeth's years before she married Jerome. But he, his, Elizabeth's mother was alive until Elizabeth came back from from um, England after being abandoned by Jerome. Her mother's still alive. And her mother was very much kind of that classic stereotypical submissive wife. She always did what William asked her to do. She had 12 children. <laughs> um, you know, not surprisingly, she died soon after the 13th one. And she... That is how William Patterson expected the women in his family to act. It's submissive, you always do what I tell you to do, and you are grateful that I am taking <laughs> care of you. And that is not at all his daughter. And, you know, the first documentary fight they have is about whether she's going to marry Jerome. So here she is at 18, and he says, you're not going to marry him. She says, oh, yes, I am. You're not going to marry him. Oh, yes, I am. And and she said, I will elope. That's what I'm going to do. So that's why he agrees um, Mm. to a marriage in a Catholic (laughs) church. And it just kept going from there. Um, They never agreed on... What was good for the United States? William Patterson had been a very ardent patriot, very much believed in the United States. She constantly wrote letters telling him how stupid that was to feel that way. (laughs) Um, That you know, doesn't he? Didn't he realize that kings and aristocrats are better than Republicans? And he thought she was deluded. And he just kept saying that, you, you know, you, your delusions, your fantasies are leading you in really bad directions, and you're ruining your son. And so he really took a main role in her son's life. Uh, her son just loved William Patterson, preferred to be in his household than with his mother in Europe. <laughs> um, and they never, never got along. And he uses his will when he dies to publicly mm-hmm. lash her. Um, And say what a horrible daughter she's been. And, And all of Baltimore rung with that will. It was printed in the newspapers. So everybody saw that William Patterson was really, really angry at his daughter for defying him for her entire life. So it was, it was, it's a disastrous, I mean, it's a dysfunctional family. She hates her brothers too. They don't like her. She thinks she was smarter than they were. She ends up making more money than any of them do.
0: Yeah. Well, she was probably right. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, she's, she's, she's one of the, she's the eldest daughter. She's the second or third oldest child. If she had been a man, I think their relationship would have been totally different.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one thing you just alluded to, and that is, you know, when she returns to Baltimore in 1834, She's a very successful, uh, is it too strong to call her a businesswoman? Oh, I Uh, would. I would. She was very savvy. How did, that's another thing that, you know, was supposed to be closed to women uh, and certainly divorced women and widows had a, a hell of a time just getting by. Yep. Yet she thrived. What did she do and how did she do it?
1: Well, she had an incredibly good head for business. In fact, I would call her a businessman, right, not even a businesswoman in this time period because she really acts like a businessman in this time period. She's constantly reading um, reports on stocks and, and investments and, you know, is hemming and hawing for months about whether to invest in the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, the very first railroad company, and she decides to go for it. Um, she you know very savvy about real estate baltimore 's this booming city right mm-hmm. she 's very mm-hmm. smart about when she has extra dollars as to where she 's buying her n- new real estate and so she often buys warehouses um, so she 's really smart about where to do that. She grew up in the household of a really smart financial merchant, right, and so I think she just kind of learned, listened and figured out this is how you do it. And so she has an extraordinarily good head for business. Um, You know, Albert Gallatin asks her, the the former Secretary of State asks her for business advice. Um, (laughs) She becomes really good friends with, um, you know, some of the most uh, richest men in in the United States, and they kind of have business conversations, right? Um, John Jacob Astor has business conversations with her, and I'm sure he was kind of surprised Right. that They were having serious <laughs> investment conversations, but she is so good where she turns the thousands of dollars her father gives her into millions by the time she dies. It's
0: yeah. I nice. love the image that you have of her uh, later in life, you know, walking through the streets of Baltimore, I think with a black dress, but a red umbrella, yeah. uh, just collecting rents.
1: Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And so even in her eighties, in early 90s, when she you know, has arthritis and stuff, she's out there collecting her rents because she believed nobody else could really collect them well except for her. Um, and, and so she's, she's the businesswoman or the businessman all the way to the end in that aristocratic garb at the same time.
0: Yeah, right. Well, Charlene, uh, we've taken up almost an hour of your life, which you can never get back, uh, so I want to thank you for that. And I, uh, I want to ask you one more question, and I know this is – Maybe an unfair question, given you just published this book, you should be basking in its success, uh, but what is next for you?
1: Well, I'm looking at another dysfunctional family
0: <laughs> Oh, excellent! in,
1: in Baltimore, um, the family of Luther Martin. He has a daughter who's 15 and elopes with the man who was studying law with Luther Martin, and once they elope, they have this paper duel where they attack each other pretty horribly, even though they're talking about one talking about his daughter and the other one's talking about his wife. So it's another kind of dysfunctional family relationship um <laughs> that I'm going to examine again and see what see what I can learn about the early republic by doing that.
0: Well, dysfunction is interesting. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to read a book about a happy, functional, boring middle-class family. No. Uh, no. no. Come on. No.
1: Those aren't the fun ones. No.
0: Yeah, we want uh we want people like Walter White and stuff <laughs> like that. That's more fun. Yes. Exactly. Well, Well, Charlene, thanks so much for talking with us. Uh, Much success, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay, thanks, Dan.
0: This has been an interview with Charlene Boyer-Lewis. She's the author of Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, An American Aristocrat in the Early Republic. My name is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies, and we'll see you later.